Christians in Europe and North America are also experiencing challenges to their religious freedom. Here the harassment is more subtle and often more insidious precisely because it's often carried out in the name of tolerance. So let's not deceive ourselves. Religious liberty is under sustained attack. And tonight I'd like to say some words about some of the threats in the developed world, specifically from what I'm going to call modern secularism. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard Sam Gregg, director of research at the Acton Institute. He delivered the opening plenary lecture of Acton University 2017. Gregg's lecture focuses on the very real threats faced by religious believers around the world, and especially in developing nations, and the pressures that are increasing on religious liberty in Western nations, which are often rooted in modern understandings of tolerance. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. As you know, I wasn't originally on the program to speak this evening. I got the call yesterday asking me if I could fill in if this happened, and I said, sure. I'm very happy to do so on one condition. And the condition was I get to talk about whatever I want, (laughs) and I get to talk how I want. So uh, I'm very happy to tell you all that I won't be using PowerPoint, because to paraphrase Lord Acton, power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. I just offended all the academics in the room, but that's okay. Uh, And as for TED Talks, well, that's a whole new level of substance-free conversation. So I asked myself what might be of interest to all of you tonight, and I discussed some possible subjects with my colleagues yesterday, Hegel's interpretation of Kant's uh, first critique of practical reason, Uh, Marxist dialectics and Italian social thought, whatever. But what I thought I would talk to you tonight about is what I think Acton University is really all about, and that is religion, truth, and freedom. Now, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in Acton University ever since it began, which I think is 12 years ago now, Now, I know that I apparently have a reputation for being not especially over-enthusiastic about arguments based upon feelings, but each time I come to Acton University, I must confess I do find myself moved by some important things. And the first, of course, is the sheer dedication of Acton staff to making sure that each of you benefits as much as possible from all the activities associated with this event. Much of what Acton staff does before, during, and after Acton University is, of course, invisible to most of us. 
But I know that much of it involves a great deal of demanding work, sleepless nights, and a lot of worry. And that makes, I think, the work of Acton staff in holding Acton University a genuine labor of love. And for that, I thank them. The second thing that moves me is Acton University's genuine ecumenical character. Now, of course, I don't mean the word ecumenical in the sense that that word is often used today. In other words, the avoidance of substantive argument, the pretense that real differences don't exist, and the happy talk of progressive theologians who have read way too much Karl Rana. <clears throat> what I mean by genuine ecumenism is the way that we engage these differences at Acton University in the way that we learn about and from other confessions, even different religions, but also the way in which various confessions highlight different dimensions of religious faith. So as a Roman Catholic, I am always awed by the love of evangelicals for the word of God in the sacred scriptures. Likewise, I'm always struck by the reminder given to the rest of us by our Orthodox Christian brothers and sisters of the mystical dimension of the ancient Christian faith and apostolic church. Then of course there is the witness, the light, of the people to whom God first spoke, the people of Israel, some of whom I was sitting with this evening. Now I could go on, but I think the roots of genuine ecumenism genuine conversation between religious faiths are many. But historically speaking, I think one of its causes <clears throat> was the totalitarian dictatorships of the 20th century. God, as the Jesuits taught me, never wills evil. He merely permits it. Partly because it's a side effect of giving us freedom partly because it's an occasion to draw out good. And one of the good things that paradoxically flowed from totalitarianism was a breaking down of many of the barriers that had hitherto inhibited interactions between, for example, Christians of different confessions. Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic Christians found themselves, for example, living side by side in concentration camps and gulags, imprisoned, tortured, even executed side by side because they chose God, truth, and freedom over Caesar, lies, and slavery. In several respects, I think that we today are experiencing another genuine ecumenical moment as a result of a regrettable development that affects all of us, regardless of our confession, regardless of our faith, regardless of our national origin. As many of you know, four years ago, we celebrated the 1700th anniversary of the document that came to be known as the Edict of Milan. The document popularly associated with the granting of religious freedom, not just to Christians, but everyone, in the Roman Empire. And I believe that that anniversary was in many respects 
providential. In other words, a sign of God's love and care for us. Because whether we live in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, Europe, or North America, the Christian church is, I repeat, is in a struggle for its freedom. It's struggling to preserve and promote two particular liberties. The first is the church's liberty to teach the fullness of the truth. The second is the freedom of Christians to act according to the fullness of that truth. And we shouldn't doubt the extent to which Christians' freedom to teach and live their beliefs is threatened today. In Sudan, for example, Christians have experienced vicious persecution by the government for over 35 years. In Nigeria, suicide bombers have driven trucks filled with bombs into Anglican and Catholic churches. In Indonesia, Christian schoolgirls, schoolgirls have been kidnapped and beheaded because of their faith. In Syria and Iraq, Orthodox and Catholic bishops, priests and laity have been kidnapped, tortured and murdered, and then bombs have been detonated at their funerals. In China, evangelical pastors, Catholic bishops, and numerous lay Christians have been imprisoned and sent away for re-education. Hundreds of thousands of Christians have fled the Middle East over the past 30 years, partly because of war, but also because of religious repression. In India, there has been a visible rise over the past 10 years in attacks on churches and the killing and displacement of Christians. By some estimates, something like 20 million Christians regularly face serious discrimination. And then, of course, there is the visible rise of anti-Semitism, especially in Western Europe, only 72 years after the Shoah. But here's one of the most chilling statistics. In 2016, about 96,000 Christians were killed, killed because of their Christian faith. That amounts to 8,000 a month, 1,800 a week, 263 Christians every single day, or if you want to put it another way, one Christian every six minutes. Now, we know that most of the overt persecution is occurring in developing nations, but Christians in Europe and North America are also experiencing challenges to their religious freedom. Here, the harassment is more subtle and often more insidious precisely because it's often carried out in the name of tolerance. So let's not deceive ourselves. Religious liberty is under sustained attack. And tonight, I'd like to say some words about some of the threats in the developed world, specifically from what I'm going to call modern secularism. And these threats, by the way, aren't limited to the developed world. They're also present now in many less economically developed countries. So if you look at North America and Europe, 
efforts to restrict Christians' freedom has taken two forms. The first has been to try and define religious liberty or redefine religious liberty as freedom of worship. The implication is that we can do whatever we want within our churches, but when it comes to our freedoms to live and express the teachings of our faith in the world, well, that's a different matter. The second effort to undermine Christians' freedom has occurred through anti-discrimination laws. The argument is that if Christians serve, for instance, the poor in a manner that's consistent with our beliefs, then Christians will inevitably be intolerant of those who don't share our beliefs. The emphasis is upon trying to marginalize and then stigmatize centuries-old teachings on all the issues that preoccupy the modern secular mind. I think there are three reasons why modern secularism is so anxious to limit religious liberty. The first is the sense that religion often promotes intolerance, sometimes violence, especially when religion is mixed up with politics. Well, there's some truth to that claim. There are, however, two other less noble reasons, I think, why modern secularists want to limit Christians' freedom. The first is historical and ideological. Many secularists interpret the various enlightenments as a process of liberation from religion. Hence, they believe the influence of religion must be limited. And that means reducing religious freedom. Third reason, I think, for secular hostility to religious liberty is even more basic. And that concerns their view of human freedom and human happiness. If I might put it crudely, it's a view that life is about each individual's satisfaction of their desires, whatever those desires may be, and it is therefore unjust or wrong or intolerant to suggest that one way of life or one set of choices or one set of beliefs is in fact true and good and that others are inadequate maybe wrong, perhaps in some cases, even evil. Now, the really curious thing about this view is that despite its apparent exaltation of the individual, it's quite determined to use state power to realize this end, but also to try and intimidate those who think that such a view of humanity is deeply inadequate and deeply dehumanizing. Why? Well, because orthodox, small-o orthodox Christianity teaches that freedom and happiness is not about satisfying our feelings, They're not about hedonism. Christianity teaches that authentic freedom and true happiness involves our free choice of truths knowable by faith and reason. In other words, Christianity's vision of liberty and happiness suggests that modern secularism's vision of liberty and happiness is wrong, if not irrational. Now, many secularists, most secularists, 
can't accept that critique. After all, secularists typically claim that they are the guardians of reason. But more importantly, modern secularism has never been especially tolerant of those who oppose the view that hedonism and relativism are really the only acceptable ethical positions. And that means that in the name of tolerance, the state is used to suppress religious freedom. Now, I wish I was exaggerating. I really do, but I'm not. If you read, for example, Western secularists who argue for extremely limited religious liberty protections, you soon see that these are, in fact, the core ideas at the heart of their agenda. To the extent that religious liberty allows Christians to say that certain choices are always wrong, then secularists typically believe religious liberty must be limited. Four years ago, for example, France's then socialist education minister said that Catholic schools in France should be, quote, neutral, end quote, about marriage. In other words, Catholic schools should not teach Catholic morality about marriage to Catholic students because to teach this morality is to be intolerant. Welcome to the dictatorship of relativism. Now, I could say much more about the reasons that have led many secularists to try and undermine the liberty of religious believers throughout the world, but the question confronting us, I think, is how we respond to these challenges. So here, I think, are three practical measures that all of us, whatever our cultural context, can take. The first measure is very simple. It's to remind Christians of the erosion of the church's freedom around the world. The sheer number of Christians killed every year for the faith. I repeat, 263 every single day in 2016. This number should shock Christians. Now, I'm not surprised that some secular journalists and some secular politicians say little to nothing about this persecution. But surely the church can do more to alert Christians to the sheer scale of the repression of their fellow Christians' religious liberty across the world. Second, and I know this is challenging, second, I think Christians need to look very, very carefully at every case in which they receive government funding for their activities. One lesson that Christians in the West are learning the hard way is that acceptance of state funding increasingly requires adherence to laws that contradict Christian moral teaching. Now, I'm not suggesting there's something intrinsically immoral about accepting state funding, but that's not the question. The question is whether it's prudent for religious believers to accept state funding and whether government funding slowly compromises the church's ability, even the willingness of the church, to maintain 
its freedom. Of course, deciding to refuse state funding doesn't guarantee the church's liberty, but it does reduce a temptation among Christians. The temptation to allow the church's liberty to be slowly reduced as religious organizations make compromise after compromise after compromise in order to receive state funding only to discover at the end of the process they've effectively become just another state bureaucracy. In effect, we need to be more willing, as my friend Ishmael Hernandez once said, we need to be willing to tell Pharaoh to keep his money. Third, there's an ecumenical, even an interfaith dimension to the struggle for religious liberty. Christians should work together and with non-Christians in resisting those who want to repress religious freedom. In recent years, Christians in France have provided everyone with a great example of how Christians can build alliances across religious and political boundaries to resist morally evil policies. Who could imagine that in the land of Voltaire and Rousseau, millions of people, evangelicals, Catholics, Jews, Orthodox Christians, Muslims, agnostics, atheists, would march together in the streets, not once, not twice, but many times against the state's latest exercise in social engineering. So, those are three practical measures for Christians. But I think we should recognize that the only long-term solution to contemporary threats to religious liberty is to explain to Christians, to people of other faiths, and to non-believers why religious liberty matters. And that means winning the battle of ideas about religious liberty. Practical measures are important. But if we lose the battle of ideas, we will always be in a defensive position. And this is where truth matters. Because truth is the only sure foundation for religious freedom. And not just for Christians, but for people of other faiths and even people of no faith. Religious liberty is not concerned with preserving religious pluralism for the sake of religious pluralism. No, our argument for religious liberty must be based first and foremost upon the duty, the responsibility of every person to seek and know and live the truth. Now this connection between religious liberty and religious truth is crucial. Because today, many people regard our religious choices as similar to our choices about what clothes we wear, what food we eat, or whether we prefer red to blue. And if our cho religious choices are no different to our choice of clothes, food, or colors, then there's no reason to accord special protection to religious liberty. So why is religious liberty important? Religious liberty matters because the religious freedom of individuals and communities is a precondition for humanity's honest search for truth. 
The truth about man is the foundation of religious liberty, but knowledge of the truth is also the goal of religious liberty. Now, I obviously don't believe that error and truth enjoy the same value. I also don't believe that all religions are essentially the same. But believing those things is completely compatible with believing that the primary point of religious liberty is to create conditions in which everyone is free to argue about, to know, to choose, and to live the truth without the threat of coercion in the background. It's this understanding of religious liberty that allows us to show why everyone benefits for this type of argument for religious liberty. The first benefit is that it highlights the importance of the integrity of everyone's religious beliefs. For as St. Augustine wrote, quote, if there is no free assent, there is no faith. For without free assent, one does not really believe, end quote. Second, such immunities from coercion provide individuals and in the community with the freedom to act in accordance with their beliefs about religious truth. The freedom to go to church, to synagogue, to mosque, to temple, or nowhere on a given day, to fast or not to fast at different times, even to change our religious beliefs. All these liberties allow everyone to live their lives on the basis of their answers to religious questions, consistent with other people's rights. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, I'd argue, the argument for religious liberty that we need to be making. And because it's an argument based firmly on natural law, this argument can, theoretically, be accepted by anyone who says they take reason seriously and who says they take the truth seriously. Indeed, it's an argument for religious liberty which integrates the truth about human reason with the truth about human liberty, with the truth that human beings can know and freely choose the truth. Now, <clears throat> obviously, Religious liberty is about respecting human freedom. But for Christians, religious liberty is also about creating space to spread the gospel and the fullness of what Christians believe to be the truth. And we witness to that faith, to that truth, by being willing, as Peter told us, quote, to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope, end quote. A reason, not a sentiment, a reason, not a vague feeling. But, and here I want to conclude, there's another way in which we're sometimes called to witness to the truth. As many of you know, the Greek word, used in the Christian Gospels for witness is martos. And the Greek word for testimony is martyrian. This is not a coincidence. 
These words remind us that being a witness to the truth, giving testimony to the truth, sometimes means martyrdom. Now, I think for most of us, martyrdom is something we find very, very difficult to imagine. But martyrdom is a real possibility faced by thousands of Christians every day, some of whom are with us in this room tonight. Sometimes it's the witness of giving up our life for the truth. To be a pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or to be an archpriest Peter Skipietrov, or to be a father Jerzy Popowusku. But more commonly, it's the witness of little martyrdoms. The little martyrdoms of being mocked for our religious beliefs. The little martyrdoms of being attacked because of our moral convictions. The little martyrdoms of being let down by some of our leaders who seem utterly intimidated by modernity. The little martyrdoms of living in societies in which the only acceptable prejudice is fast becoming anti-Christianity. Now, none of us should pursue martyrdom, but we also know that Christ told his followers that those who follow him will sometimes suffer as he suffered. Moreover, martyrdom, big or little, red or white, is a powerful way in which the reality of free choice and our free choice of the truth is made real for everyone. And that perhaps is ultimately the core message that I hope that you will take away from Acton University, that freedom and truth must go together because the Lord who gave us life gave us liberty, the liberty to live and choose the truth, the freedom to proclaim that truth and the liberty to live that truth the truth that fully sets us free. Without truth, there is no freedom, but it's only through freedom that we can embrace the truth and the good and the beauty that we call human flourishing. The human flourishing that prefigures and helps to build up the kingdom of God that is to come. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.